0: Now, I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to read the second half of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Picking up in verse 28, where what we will begin to read is what is most often read the Sunday before Easter, where Jesus is physically going to be entering Jerusalem and experiencing the last of his ministry here on this earth. But we're getting to it a bit early, because as a church family, we're going through the Gospel of Luke chapter by chapter, and we will still get to the cross and the resurrection on, on Easter weekend. But all of the Gospels are structured that they give us information about Jesus' life from birth to adulthood, and then for a period of three time in his public, three years of his public ministry, but then when we get to the last week of his life, each Gospel just goes into slow motion and gives us more detail about that one week of time than we often get about the previous 33 years of experience. And it's a way of every Gospel writer to say, this is the most important information for us to make sense of his birth and his childhood and any other things he did or said, we have to zoom in our attention. <clears throat> excuse me, to what happened in that final week of his life. Hopefully, you found it. It's on page eight hundred and seventy-eight. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, beginning in verse twenty-eight. And when he Jesus said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers." And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. Here we have in this passage all along, Jesus had been preparing his disciples that they were going to Jerusalem, that very significant things were gonna happen. But then in a way that he decides to enter into the city, he specifically does it in a way to demonstrate a couple of things. One, a fulfillment of prophecy that long before Jesus was born, when there was prophecies about a Messiah who would one day come, there was a prophecy of how he would come, that he would come riding on a colt in a, in a humble way. And so Jesus fulfills that. And so that anyone around who was familiar with that would have seen that as a sign. But there's something also about it that demonstrates his posture even in coming that he means by his entire life to bring peace. I mean, that was the announcement when he was born. The angel said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And in fact, when he does enter, that's part of the, the praise that comes. Peace in heaven and glory, to, uh, glory in the highest. That his purpose in coming was to bring about peace. And so his coming in this animal, in this way, as opposed to coming in on a war horse, is part of his way to demonstrate that if you're looking at him, you, you have nothing to fear. He is coming as a ruler, but as a ruler who seeks to bring about peace. But right before this happened, what we didn't read in a, was a parable that Jesus shared in verses 11 through 27 to say this isn't just a peaceful entrance, but this is a peaceful return. Jesus, in coming into the city, yes, he's entering it, but there's a way in which he's returning to something that belongs to him. And so the parable that Jesus told right before this event happened was of a ruler who had a vast kingdom. And the ruler decided to go off into a far country. The same phrase that's used in the story of the prodigal son, but it's reversed. In the story of the prodigal son, the son takes all the wealth of the father and goes off into a far country to spend it. But in this parable, Jesus says, imagine the ruler, he has the kingdom, and he goes off into a far country. And when he goes, he leaves all of his resources into the care of those who are left behind says, here's my kingdom, here's all my resources, here's my wealth, you're in charge, I'm going, and I'm going to come back. And he tells that story to then share that even though the king is generous to give the responsibility of all that belongs to him to his servants, some of the servants are angry. It says so much that they actually hate him. What they're hoping for is that he never comes back. Because here, now, they're entrusted with the responsibility of all that belongs to him. He's off in a far country. Excuse me. And they're hoping if he never comes back, then they get to have it all. They don't just get to be responsible for it. They get to own it all. And Jesus tells this and then has this event in his life where he comes to Jerusalem And part of him also being on this humble animal and coming in this humble way is also a way to signify for everyone he's about as comfortable as he could be. He's coming home. He's coming to what rightfully belongs to him. If you picture, if you have a favorite pair of slippers, you know, that kind of you know when you're home, when you take off whatever you were wearing as you were out and about, but now you're home and now you get to be a little bit more comfortable. Comfortable. When you put those slippers on, those aren't designed for you to go run and do battle in or go do some work outside. There's this sense of you look comfortable here. And Jesus is coming in this peaceful way, but in part it's peaceful also because he is the rightful heir of everything that Jerusalem and the temple represents. This is his place. He actually owns it all. So in the humility, don't miss the incredible confidence (laughs) and the statement. He doesn't come on a war horse surrounded by soldiers to conquer it. He comes in this humble way as to say, I don't need to conquer what's already mine. All of this belongs to me. All of this points to me. And in that sense, this is home. I don't know if you saw the video that went viral on Friday, but I watched it again and again because it just summed up life with kids of a reporter trying to give a newscast for the BBC and then his kid walks into the conversation. So he's giving this report about a very serious situation going on in South Korea. He's dressed in a suit, sitting at a desk, and unbeknownst to him, what seems to be about a two-year-old kid just comes walking in behind him and the reporter doing the cast can see it and says, it looks like one of your children has just entered into the room. The best part of it for me, though, was he doesn't stop and turn around and address his kid. He does one of these. (laughs) Which, this can go very bad, and especially very bad on international TV. Like, if you hit your kid and you bump them into something, or like it'll all be recorded for everyone to see. But he tries to maintain this sort of view of professionalism when everything's broken down. And no, there's, there's, no, it's already broken down. You should just turn around, look at your kid, walk them out of the room, and then come back. And what looked like a professional setting was, no, this is just his home. And then another little kid comes in, and it, if you haven't seen it, you have to go watch it. You will laugh out loud in watching it at the embarrassment that it is. But it becomes funnier at the inability to recognize just a simple shift to say, because there was a golfer uh, yesterday, I think it was Heinrich Stenson, His kid, his daughter, ran out on the golf course while he was playing in a tournament. But he stopped. He picked up his daughter. He walked her all the way back to his wife. Then he gave his wife his kiss and his other uh, kids a kiss, and he moved on and he kept playing. And it was like, that's how you handle that situation. (laughs) You don't pretend like it's not happening. You just acknowledge it and embrace it. Jesus is coming into the place that from its very conception has all been designed to point to him. This is home. He doesn't need to make a big show because this all rightfully belongs to him. And so he comes in this humble way, the voices that sing his praise, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It is a beautiful thing. So while we might always emphasize the humility in it, and we should, It would have been humble if he was on a war horse. (laughs) The maker of Jerusalem, the architect of the temple, the creator of the universe, what animal would have been sufficient to show his glory? None. If what we say is really true about him, that he is the rightful king to which all of it points, then he's not just a ruler like any other ruler. He is the king of kings, the lord of lords. And any act of his to enter in bodily form into this place would have been an act of humility. But see him also as the confident king who knows exactly where he is, knows exactly what he's doing, and understands what's coming ahead. But in that, what we see in the very next scene, beginning in verse 41, is that he looks over this city, he weeps. So he knows he's home. He's comfortable. He doesn't have to prove who he is. But he looks at the people in his home, and it says he weeps. And it's an intentional word. It doesn't just say cry. It says weeps. This is the same word when the lady enters into the home, and she's overcome with grief, and she starts weeping at Jesus' feet so much that she gets them all wet, and so she undoes her hairs to start wiping the tears off of him. It's that kind of a weeping. It's that same term that it uses to describe Jesus' response as he looks over the city. And he's weeping because he says that they don't realize, they hadn't known this day, the things that make for peace. The peace that was announced at his birth, the peace that was just sung about in his entrance, he knows this city will soon not experience. It seems peaceful. What, all of this is happening in festival time. There's people everywhere. There are crowds and crowds of people. Jesus isn't the only one with his disciples entering into Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people at the time of Passover coming to be a part of this. And he looks at all of them and realizes those who are, don't know who he is, who can't recognize what he's going to do, who don't know him to be the rightful king, Everything they see, every building they look at, every fixture that is represented, as the rightful king, he knows within a 30-year time is going to be completely flattened. There won't be a temple to keep bringing the family back to at festival time. And he knows that. And part of his message is to forewarn them of that that what looks like peace is not peace and what you're rejecting in me is the one trying to bring peace. If you would listen to me and follow me, you'll experience a peace that no one can take away. But as he looks over the city and knows the future that awaits it, he weeps over it, which is good news. When we see him crying, it reveals to us the character of the king, not just as a powerful king, but a good king that he weeps over sin. He weeps over ignorance. He weeps over rebellion. When you think about people that you love and things that hurt them or harm them, in your love for them, how you would want to protect them, how you want them to know how much they mean to you, how much you care about them, and at times when they struggle to see that or understand that, how much it breaks your heart when someone you love doesn't realize how much they're loved. And if you're in that situation and you've experienced that, to know that then the God that you pray to and plead to help for and from is someone who knows what it's like to weep over people that he loves. What an amazing truth that God would come to experience this. All of us look forward to what is promised in heaven is a day when every tear is wiped away. But there's a way that we could even describe that, that you don't even have to be a Christian to really desire that. That's just human, right? To say, don't you long for a day when nothing would happen that would cause anyone to weep or grieve. Most normal human beings would say, yes, I'd love that. But then, if you ask the question, do you know of anyone who has that and could have that, who would choose to give that up and experience grief and experience weeping? And I so, said, no. I mean, we're often, when we do funerals, we will tell people if, if that person could come back, they wouldn't want to come back because what they're experiencing is so great and so much more than anything. We experience here, and that's absolutely true. That is the promise and the hope of heaven. But in the person of Jesus is someone who had that, had no reason to experience the world in the way that we do and weep in the way that we weep, and his weeping over the city is an intentional choice as not only the powerful king but the good king who came and understood what grief was experientially an amazing truth it's a tearful response that he has as he looks over the city and then we see a prophetic sign he enters into the temple and part of the reason there's a table there is because people are coming from all over the world at festival time and for some of them it's a burden to bring the sacrifices with them And so at the temple is the place that they can come and maybe make an exchange and say, I didn't bring the animal with me for the festival, but if I give you some money and then you can give me the sacrifice, uh, they make an exchange or they're coming from different cities and with the currency that they have isn't the currency that they need while they're here for not just a day, they're here for more than a week of time. And so they need to make an exchange so that they can do business while they're in town for the festival so that the original purpose of the tables that are being set up that Jesus comes to are not a bad thing. They they helped many, many people who had to travel a long, long way to get to Jerusalem. But Jesus sees it and recognizes that some had abused it and used it as an opportunity to manipulate those who couldn't, within and of themselves, provide everything that they needed. But it's not just the injustice of the exchange that Jesus recognizes and so makes him to drive them out. Because as far as we know, that table was put right back together about 30 minutes later, and they just kept doing business. And we don't even know how many people would have seen it, because like I said, you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of people. What's going on in one part of the room to another part of the room you wouldn't necessarily have known? Uh, Friday night, I'm just thinking of this, describing the chaos Um, I took the boys up to a concert at Bay Presbyterian Church, and it was a kids' concert, and so it was designed to be for kids, but therefore a lot of kids came. And I had told some other people about it, and then I just checked with one of them to say, any chance you were there? Because if you were there, I might not have seen you. If there were 700 people in the sanctuary, 500 of them were under the age of seven. And it was like, wow, this is absurd. This is why we don't do this normally. How can you do anything productive in this type of environment? Songwriter was great. I mean, they had cartoons going with everything, and everything was built in to embrace this. But poor guy, every time he tried to make a point or just even a transition from one song to another, I mean, no one's listening. This is the toughest crowd you could ever have to speak or try to make any sense to, and it was thoroughly fun. And it's that times 100 in Jerusalem, right? I mean, just think of Jesus as 12 years old. His parents get on the journey home, and they don't realize he's not with them. And are like, I thought you knew where he was. I thought you knew where he was. I mean, that's the sort of chaos that's going on at festival time. So this table probably comes right back up 30 minutes later. The exchange keeps happening all week. But for someone who saw it, for the disciples who were right there, it's a sign, it's a prophetic sign. Because what Jesus knows that everyone else doesn't know is that even every good attempt they're making to mediate who has this sacrifice, who has this money, how can we make this all work? He's the one person in the whole temple that knows even on the best day, this is insufficient. It's not just a source of injustice, it is totally insufficient, even in its best version. And that he's the one who's going to be the sufficient sacrifice that this table and that altar have never been able to bring about. And he knows that. And he knows that the righteous anger of God towards sin is going to come upon him. So it's not just in Gethsemane where we see him weeping, Lord, if there's any other way, let there be any other way. I mean, he's looking at the table and saying, this is one of the things that's kind of set up to be that way, and it's not doing the job, and he flips it over. This isn't sufficient. This isn't getting to the root and the heart of sin in the lives of people. This sacrifice, this exchange of money for this or that, it's not bringing about true healing to people. They're still lost. And in some ways, they're getting more lost because they think it's sufficient. And so he's the one who says, it's not just this table that's going to go, it's the curtain that's going to go, it's the walls that are going to go, this whole thing is going to be down to the ground after he dies and rises again. And that's part of what made him uh, a volatile figure for some. They didn't like what he was saying. Because in his speech, in his actions, he was pointing people to this reality that even in their best of intentions and efforts, it was not sufficient for what needed to be done. But here's the thing. He's standing right there as a willing sacrifice. Every other sacrifice that came didn't come on its own. Someone had to drag it kicking and screaming, or they had to pay for it when they got there. He knows it's coming, he's standing in the middle of it, he's not running from it, he's broken over it and weeping, But he doesn't leave. He's a willing sacrifice and atonement for the sin that we have. And all of that so that those who are alienated and lost, those who are broken, those who know that they're far away from God could be found, could be saved could experience salvation. That's how the chapter opens. The story that we skipped in verses 1 through 10 is the story of Jesus talking to someone named Zacchaeus who is the chief tax collector who is despised by everyone else but by the end of their exchange is brought into fellowship with God. And Jesus says in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. And he's come to Jerusalem as the willing sacrifice. So that that good news could be shared not just to Zacchaeus, but to all of us. That the things that make for peace, the things that need to be done for us to be reconciled and peace to be established, are things that really only he can do. And he's willing to do them. And what we encounter as we continue to go through Luke is to see him as, yes, the humble king who's broken over sin, but in all of that drives him to do what needs to be done so that there really can be peace on earth and peace in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize on our part the strangeness and the inability for us to truly grasp what it meant for you to experience life on this earth. That for us, it's all we know. And even there, it's a puzzle for us to figure out most of the time. But for you to choose to come to what rightfully belonged to you. When many of us would have been glad that you would never come so that we could claim it as our own. But in your love for us, knowing that that would not end well. And that you must return and claim what is yours and do what needs to be done so that peace can be established. We pray that through your Spirit you would look into our own hearts, the different places that we come from, and see the battles and the conflicts that rage. and that you would speak into those situations your peace that only you can bring as we trust in you to do what is sufficient to bring it about and enable us to experience the joy and the peace and the love that you do have for us as our good God and King. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.